today, we're going to be finishing off our What on Earth Am I Here For series. We're going to kind of recap a few things. And very, very excited as we go. Because life lived for oneself is very empty and unfulfilling, yet it seems to be everybody's default. Like, I've, I don't think I've ever met somebody who wasn't born selfish. And you, you probably met somebody who you've encountered now who didn't seem to be selfish now. But if anyone ever have any siblings that were much, much younger? Anyone have like a two or three-year-old in the house? I don't care if it's a child, niece, nephew, brother, sister, cousin, little person. Okay. Anyone ever seen a little person? Okay. All right. The rest of you guys, it's time to come out of your room and turn off the TV. Okay. So uh, if you encounter... Uh, kids between the ages of one and a half, and I, my oldest is four, so I can't really speak much after that. But in this range, it becomes very evident that they are born instinctually selfish, obsessed with self, and they will fight over anything. Because, like, I've literally watched fights over things that didn't exist because someone broke someone's imaginary toy. You know, um, I think my boys got in a fight because someone lost his invisible superhero. I think they, they wanted two superheroes, and the one had Spider-Man, so the other one got an invisible one, and they were playing, and then he lost it, and I was trying. Like, but <laughs> it wasn't really there. And they were fighting over it. It is a regular occurrence in my house for my uh, Ezekiel and Benaiah to fight over milk. And you'd, you'd think it's not a big deal. It's a cup of milk, but lo and behold, he's going to drink all the milk. And it's a freak. Oh, daddy will fill it back up. It's okay. No, he's going to drink all the milk. And they like start beating each other. And like, stop beating each other. No one's getting milk. No, like it's, it's a, a regular occurrence. So they can have fights over a cup of milk. That They can argue over the stupidest things. And there's, and then he can turn around and my oldest loves to be a hero. So he will try to serve, help, share. And then all of a sudden he wants it back and wants to fight. You know, what is going on? And it's because somehow, deep down inside, we are all, our default seems to be selfish. But what happens to that selfish nature as you grow older? Most of us learn that some things aren't acceptable. That, you know, punching someone over drinking milk is probably not acceptable. But not everybody actually deals with the issue. In fact, a lot of people, if not most of America, ages and learns how to behave in a way that other people define as acceptable, but the selfishness that was there as a two-year-old hasn't changed. And you look, and it becomes this self-centered life where it's all about me, what I can get, what I have, and self. And as I was looking at it, I'm like, well, what does that self-life go for? Like, well, America, they want money, they want power, they want influence, um, some of them want sex, and you, you look at it and you go, okay, so these are some of these, these basic things that they're, they're going for, but if they achieved this, what have they achieved, and how happy are they? And you look, and in fact, I actually started this series with a clip from a 60 Minutes interview with Tom Brady. For those who don't know who Tom Brady is, he's the quarterback for the Patriots. Woo! We have a fan over here. Um, during this interview, he was being asked, and they're, they're talking about things, and discover that he's got like a $60 million contract, and I could be wrong on my numbers, but it's a lot of money. He gets paid lots and lots of money. He's got lots of money, lots of stuff, lots and lots of fame, almost too much fame, he says, because everywhere he goes, he gets mobbed because he's famous. Um, is 
there's always girls throwing themselves at him. And he just begins to go through this list. And he goes, and, and accomplishments. He says, I, I've accomplished more than I ever dreamed possible. I've won several Super Bowls. And I've got all this money. I've got all this fame. Why do I still feel empty? And it was really funny because you just didn't expect to see that in this interview, this breakdown of this guy who says, I have everything I ever wanted and more, and I'm empty inside. And the interviewer goes, well, what are you looking for? And he goes, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. I just know that I'm empty. I just know that there's got to be something more than this. Because a life on its own, a life for self is empty. In fact, in Ecclesiastes, you get to check out Solomon, who accomplished much more than Tom Brady. Uh, he, he didn't win Super Bowls because there wasn't a Super Bowl, but he had so much money that he stopped counting all the silver. He's like, okay, just counting it as stones. It's just, it's, it, I have too much gold to bother counting the silver. He just, the guy was crazy, crazy rich. He was a king. He had influence. He had money. He had power. He had a thousand wives. He had as much sex as he could handle. He had like all sorts of, everything that he thought that he wanted. If he thought he wanted anything else, he just went and bought it. He said he accomplished things. He Think, well, maybe if I build something, accomplish something, and maybe if I buy something that nobody else has. So he got what they call the treasure of kings, the peculiar treasures. So it'd be like, what does nobody have? Well, if somebody else has got a fast horse, what does nobody, no one has a peacock. I'll get a peacock. Okay, you guys want a, you, they went to a concert? I'll buy the band. I'll have the concert anytime I want. Like he just bought everything he thought he could possibly want. He got everything. And at the end he goes, this is stupid. This is empty. This is vanity. This is like chasing after the wind. You can't catch it. It's like grabbing oil with your hand. The tighter the squeeze, the less you have. He goes, it doesn't work. And, and, I, and I was looking at this going, well, this is where so many people are living. But life has a purpose. And so many people are empty because they haven't found it. And, and you need to start with this simple concept that you matter to God. God loves you. In Ephesians 1.4, it says, Long before he laid down the earth's foundation, he had us in mind, had settled on us as the focus of his love. And most of my sermon is going to look like it did in the service before. But I want to take a minute because as somebody walked in today, I just felt God just like, I just, they walked in and I just felt God saying, I love them. They're valuable. They're worth it, and they matter to me. And it honestly, like, just, it, it was so abrupt, it kind of shocked me. I ran, tried to tell him, and then as I walked away, I saw in their life, and then I looked up at the ground floor, and like, just, I was in the ground floor, so I looked up at this, all of the students, and I felt like there was, a, there was some others here that needed to hear it as well. And I said, God, what do you want to say? And, and just seeing that God's love for you is so great. And that there's someone or lots of someone's in here that feel alone like nobody cares. All alone in their hurt. It's a lie. God cares. God is the one who sets your value, not your accomplishments or mistakes. Not other people's opinions or other people's words. Not people who said they want you or don't want you. Not those people who, who tell you that they love you or reject you. But God is your creator and he is the one who establishes your value. And he says that you are worth it and that you are loved. And, and, and I, I want you to know that you are loved 
by God. God cares so much that he sent his son. John 3, 16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Why? Because he cares. And in John 15, 13, it says, No greater love has a man than this, that he lay down his life for a friend. He says that the greatest mark of love is laying down one's life for another, and this price I am happy to pay for you because there's no greater love than the love that I have for you. And for us to recognize this love, this value that God places on us. In Ephesians 1.11, it says, It's in Christ that we find out who we are and what we are living for. Long time before we first heard of Christ and got our hopes up, he had his eye on us, had designs on us for glorious living. God loves you, made you on purpose, with a purpose. You have a plan for your life, and God loves you. Colossians 1.16 says, For everything, absolutely everything, above and below, visible and invisible, rank after rank after rank of angels, everything got, it started, and in, start, got started in him and finds its purpose in him. It goes, you started in him, and he has a purpose and a plan for you. You are Loved. You go, what is this purpose that God has for me? Number one, to know and love God back. And we call this worship. Because worship, yeah, we worship in a service and we have songs. And a lot of times that's what we reduce worship to in our heads. We go, worship is the first 20 minutes of church where we come up front and we sing. Some, of, some people raise their hands, some people jump up and down, some people get on their knees and you go, well, this is worship. Yeah, you are worshiping. You are coming up here declaring God's praises, declaring your love for him, declaring his love for you. Some of you guys are raising your hands in surrender or kneeling before God in surrender. Yeah, that is worship, but worship is much more than that. Worship is not just a song. Worship you can worship with your entire life. In fact, Romans 12.1 says, so here's what I want you to do. God helping you, this is from the message. Take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. He says that our life, when we do it to honor him, <clears throat> when we recognize him and put him first, that this is worship. And for us to recognize that you can worship at home, that you can worship at school, that you can worship at dinner with your family, that because worship, when you begin to do things in a way that you're going, I do this because I want to honor God. I want my life to bring him honor and him glory, that this is worship, that it calls it a, um, an offering to him. Matthew twenty two thirty seven. Jesus is asked, what's the most important commandment? And he goes into this and says that this is the most important thing. He says, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. The second is like it. You should love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands depend all the law and the prophets. He goes, the number one thing is love God. You're supposed to love God back. God loves you. And the first purpose he has for you is that you love him back. And we call that worship. And when you do, God takes pleasure in it. Your creator gets pleasure as you love him 
back. Psalms 147 verse 11 says, but he takes pleasure in those who honor him in those who trust in his constant love. So we want to give God this love back and we call this worship. But what was the other thing? He said two things. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind. And that this is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Number one, we're created to worship God, to know and love God back. Number two, we're created for fellowship. We are created for relationship. God never made people to be alone. We are not called to be hermits. And there are some people who are like, I'm an introvert. I am too called to be a hermit. No, you're not. Um, You may not thrive on overwhelming amounts of people interaction, but you are not meant to be a hermit in a cave. There was actually a time when a lot of believers thought that the best thing that they could do was try to be holy and untempted. So they literally went and lived in a cave. Another guy, one guy built a tower, like with a platform on the top and spent like years on a platform. What are you doing on a platform? Well, I'm not being tempted by anything. Look at me, I'm so holy. And No, you're weird. Um, That's not accomplishing what God made you for. God said to to love God and to love people. So the thing that Jesus said was the second most important thing that you do, you're neglecting by putting yourself in a spot where you can't love anybody. That God created us to love people. In fact, when, when everything was perfect, Genesis, God made man, and he looks around, he goes, everything is good, and he looks at the all the different creation. He starts saying, this is good, this is good, this is good. And then he looks at man and, and he, he, the creation of man was good, but then he looks and says, it is not good. This is Genesis 2.18. It is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Man, mankind, he goes, it is not good for them to be alone. My purpose, my plan for them is not to be alone. They are to be in fellowship. In Romans chapter 12, verse 5, it says this. It says, in the same way, even though we are many individuals, Christ makes us one body and individuals who are connected to each other. Do you realize that you can't be connected to each other without each other? If you are all alone, you can't be connected. Are you connected? Or do you blow in and blow out? Do you just spend all your time alone playing video games? We live in the most disconnected society of all time. We have the most, um, like we've got like social media and all these things that you would think would help people connect. But a lot of times it helps everybody disconnect. You can have a room full of 17 people and instead of talking to each other, they're texting because it puts a little bit of a safety bubble in there. And you watch all these people that spend their time, they go home and they play video games. And they, everyone's got their own private moat. Like it used to be like you'd expect the town to have a moat to protect it, but no, now everyone has their own moat. They drive into this neighborhood full of people. They drive in and they push a little button and the moat goes up and they drive their car in, push the button and the moat comes back down. And their garage door protects them. They, they go to get their mail. They don't walk out to get the mail. They drive their car out there, stick their hand out quick, grab the mail and, dr- and pull in the driveway. And they're like, once a year, like, hey, look, I see my neighbor. Oh, crud, we're both mowing at the same time. Hi. We have the most disconnected 
society, people used to help each other all the time. They were at actually a relationship with each other. We were actually made to have fellowship. We were made to be some part of something larger than ourselves. Jesus described it as the second most important thing. He said, love God, love people. And when he described what his followers would look like, he did not say, my followers will carry around a book full of my instructions called the Bible. He didn't say, my followers will be recognized by showing up at a service every week. He said, said, John 13, 35, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. He goes, the thing that's going to mark you is your love. So do you realize that if you refuse to interact, if you don't connect, in fact, he says how you love one another. If you don't connect with other believers, he says the thing that's going to mark every believer, is it marking you? That's kind of a scary concept. You look at yourself and you're like, oh, am I? If, if someone was to look at me and go, all right, is he a believer? Would the way that I interact with others be on the evidence list that they would say he's a believer? Would they just look and go, well, he works at a church, duh. So, so who cares where I work? What fruit do you see? Would they go, by the way that he interacts and treats other people, I can see God's love in him for others. Because that's what we're called to. That's what Jesus said was supposed to mark us. And then he, he goes on, he says, not to neglect the meeting, to, not to neglect our church meetings in, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. And God gives all sorts of different commands that you can't even accomplish on your own. Just in the one another's. He says that we are to be devoted to one another, to give preference to one another, to be the same mind toward one another, to accept one another without withholding judgment, to, um, to esteem one another, to build up one another, to counsel one another, to serve one another, to bear one another's burdens, to be gentle to one another, to be kind to one another, to speak the truth to one another, to submit to one another, to have compassion to one another, bear, um, forgive one another. The list goes on. There's about 35 things in this list that he says we're supposed to do to one another. You can't do that on your own. When I was a kid, I have, I still have a brother, but when I was a kid, I didn't get along with my brother all the time. Um, there was a lot of times where I knew that I loved God. I didn't think I loved my brother. Uh, in fact, I was pretty confident that I didn't. And one time I decided to declare that I didn't love my brother. I told him that I hated him. Um, and my mom heard me. That didn't go over well. But in amongst the things that she responded with, she goes, all right, you need to go read 1 John 420. Uh, you're like, I love God, just hate him. He's a goober. And so you get out your Bible, you read it, and it says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. You're like, oh, poo. <laughs> I'm like, but I do love God. My brother is nothing like God. I just don't like him. <laughs> For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. I'm like, oh, God, I need your help. <laughs> Because I think I love you and I don't think I love my brother. So apparently something's wrong. God, will you do a work in me? God, will you fill me with your love until your love for, overflows from within me? Because if I love you enough, your love for them is going to begin to show in me. That doesn't mean I approve of everyone's behavior. It doesn't mean that when I love them, I say, it's okay that you 
do anything immoral. It's not okay that you lie, cheat, abuse. No, it's not okay. But God's love is supposed to overflow. I can set up boundaries and still love you. I can say that's not okay to love you. I can acknowledge that something that you're doing is not okay and still love you. Loving someone does not mean that you agree with everything that they do or approve of everything that they do. But God's love is supposed to mark us. And it's not supposed to just be a church thing. Our fellowship, our community is not meant to just stay inside the four walls. Or not that church, Res has four walls. Res has like a billion walls. But it's not supposed to stay inside these walls. In Acts 5.42, it says, Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never, never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. They met in the temple courts, which we would call the church, and they met from house to house, which we would call like a small group. It is very easy to come into church and to hide. Um, you can hide underneath the stairs, but most people don't hide underneath the stairs. There's a few students who try that, but mostly um, it's people that come in, that come in late, that try to slip in and not talk to anybody, find a seat, and then find, try to get out of here as quick as they can afterwards. Do you realize that by doing so, you're trying to avoid fellowship? Small groups are an amazing spot where you can connect, that you can build relationships. Um, I've got some stories. A couple of students from some of the ground floor small groups. If you're not in a small group, I want to encourage you to get into a small group. If all of you guys sign up into small groups, they'll have a waiting list because you don't have enough spots for everybody. That's okay. If you guys make a waiting list, it'll make finding a leader to run it easier. So go ahead, everybody, sign up that's not in one after service. We've got some signups on the info table in the back. But as I was... I was asking some of my boys about small group. A couple of them wrote, they, they all shared some awesome stuff, but a couple of the guys wrote in and said, I remember my first time coming to small group. I didn't know what to expect. He says, but in my group, um, everyone wanted to be there, be there and genuinely loved each other. I was able to go there every week and be myself. Uh, this was a spot where people were able to be open. He said, I was able to go there and be myself and, and talk about the real struggles that we were all facing. We never sugarcoated it. And went through that whatever the issues were that he was dealing with, they were able to talk about them and deal with them. He says, we kept each other accountable. My small group was there for me when I needed them most. And talked about his, the death of his best friend. Said that at that point, he was broken. He was angry. He was hurting. And feeling abandoned. And if it wasn't for these friends, he doesn't know what he would have done and talked about how the small group had been there in the times that he wasn't planning, but that he needed help. And he ends saying, when Jesus sent out the 12, he never sent them out alone, but in pairs. The Bible says that one person can be overpowered, but two can defend themselves. And a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Another one wrote in said that it, um, He'd been trying to find happiness in many things, not including God. But that was not getting him true happiness from the stuff that I was doing. Uh, stuff I was stuffing in myself to avoid, um, 
to fill the void of pain and anger. He went on and said that he got involved in a small group. He says, as I continued going to small group, I got prayer and just support in other areas I needed, as well as some healing. With small group, it helped me to realize that a lot of people go through that and that support for something like that is beneficial. Having a small group shaped my heart and mind. And he ends up saying that having a small group builds a foundation so you can grow in your walk with him, whether you are or are not yet. And begin to talk about how the how much of their life was impacted and shaped by a small group. If you are not in one, I encourage you, get in a small group because you were created for fellowship. You need to get alongside some people that are going to sharpen you and help push you along the way. This is not a you students. This is every single believer. I'm in a small group. I have a friend that calls me out. In fact, he came to me this morning. He said, how are you doing? How are you doing in this area? How are you doing? He picks my life apart and says, what's this going on? What's going on over here? What's going on over here? And make sure that I don't get derailed. Make sure that life doesn't overcome me, that I don't get caught up in some compromise. It's going to derail my entire life because he comes and asks me questions. And if I start to get derailed, he'll help put me back on track. And it's a very important thing that we have these in our life. We were created to know and love God back. We were created for fellowship and we were created for discipleship. Discipleship, uh, Matthew 28, verse 19. Jesus says, go therefore make disciples. He doesn't say, go make believers. Go make people who believe in me. Go make people who even call on my name. He says, go make disciples. You go, what's a disciple? Isn't this like a Christian? Old term word? No. Christian's a very polluted word. Uh, its actual definition would be a description of a disciple. But we've misused it. A disciple is one who learns from the master to become just like the master. The actual definition, the beginning, the start word, where the word started for Christian was... Uh, Little Christ. They said that these people looked just like little Jesuses. A lot of people now call themselves a Christian that don't look anything like Jesus. They don't act anything like Jesus. The discipleship is the process of becoming more and more like him. Our life, we are called to know and love God back. We are called for fellowship and we are called to grow more and more like Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. It says that our life should be new. That there should be a new thing that marks it. It says, not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That there's a process of renewing your mind, of changing and going, God, I want to look like you. A lot of people, especially in America, Christianity has become a pop culture thing that's a joke. Where people go, you know what, I'm a Christian. And you go, really? Does that affect your life? They're like, yeah, I go to church every once in a while. Some go more than others. But it doesn't affect them. And, and here's, here's a great test. I, I, I give this test a lot of times when I'm doing pre-marriage counseling. And because it's a foundation for life, but it also becomes a foundation for marriage. So I'll ask them, I said, okay, why do you do what you do? And most of the time, everyone looks back at me and goes, what do you mean? Why do I do what I do? Say, well, when you're going to make a choice, there's, 
there's something that you go back on that, de- that determines what you choose. Let's just say the choice is, do you have sex? Okay? Because this is a choice that all of them are dealing with. And, and I'm like, all right, well, um, you can go through and you can use that, or you can say, you know, how do I handle my money? You can say, how do I talk? What movies do I watch? It doesn't matter what the choice is. As you make these choices, does your choice, is it made on, first off, whatever will bring you the most pleasure or satisfying result? B, what, what they believe will make other people happy or minimize pers- uh, interpersonal conflict? C, the values that you were taught by the family, by your family as a dominant influence? Or D, primarily upon religious principles and teaching of the Bible when making moral decisions? And it's amazing to me how often people who come in saying, I'm a Christian, will look at me and go, you know what? I make my choices based on whatever I think will make me happy. Or they'll look at me and go, you know what? I make my choices in whatever I think will make somebody else happy or minimize interpersonal conflict. And I, and I look at them, and a lot of times I'll sit there and I go through the thing going, you do realize that Jesus said that the one that you obey, you've made master of your life. And he says that you can only have one master. You can't serve two masters, Matthew 6, 24. So the group that you make decisions to please is the group you're living for. Is it Jesus? I've had a lot of them go, no. And I've had a lot of them that say, you know what, I want it to be. I want to change. And in my office right there, we'll say, all right, let's make Jesus the Lord of your life right here. And they'll make a decision. And if you hear this and you say, I need to make that decision in just a couple minutes. I'm going to rip through the next two points. We're going to give you a chance to make that decision. So you know what? If I look at my life and say, I'm a believer, I know the right things, I believe them, but God is not the Lord or the master of my life, I am. Or my friends are. Maybe my family. But I'm not living to please him, and I want to. I want to make him the master of my life, and I want to live for him and make him my Lord. I want to give you that chance in just a minute. But you're made for ministry. This ministry, you aren't made just for yourself, but to serve each other. Um, You're not saved by what you do, but you will be rewarded for what you do. You were made, that's number four, and I'm gonna go into number five quickly, evangelism. You were made for a mission. You were made to spread the gospel. In uh, 2 Corinthians 5.18, it says that God reconciled us to him and gave us a ministry of reconciliation. He reached out to us and he gave us the job of reaching out to others and bringing them to him. He loves people and wants us to bring them to him. And he, it's such a big deal. When I I look at how he sees it, um, in Ezekiel, he tells Ezekiel, chapter 33, verse 8 to 9, He goes, if I tell you to warn somebody and you warn them and they don't change, it's their fault. But if you, if I tell you to warn them and you don't warn them, they'll die, but it's on you. And I I heard that. Okay. God calls us a big deal. It's a big deal. 
that I take my influence that he gives me to invite people to know him. And we try to make it easy for you. We've got the Divergent series coming up on, in April. It's going to be awesome. We do different things to make it easy for you guys to invite friends. You don't have to bring them to church to, to get them to encounter Jesus. You can introduce them to Jesus at your school. But if you want help, we're happy to help bring them. You are made to know and love God back. You are made for fellowship. You are made to grow, to, for discipleship, to grow more and more like Jesus. You are made for ministry and you are made for a mission. And if you're here and say, you know what? I need to know God. Not just to know about God because I know plenty. Maybe you don't know God at all and don't know much about God. It's for you too. But if you're here and say, you know what, as I ask myself why I do what I do, I realize that God is not the master of my life and I want to make him the Lord, aka the master and savior of my life. I want to give you a chance to do that. Can everyone bow their heads and close their eyes? This is your chance. When I say three, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. One, get ready. Two, ready to declare him to be the master. Three, raise your hands up nice and high. Awesome. See your hand? Saw your hand. Who else is? That's me. Awesome. All right. You can put your hands down. The Bible says that whoever calls on his name will be saved. So we're going to do that. We're going to call on God's name. We're going to declare him to be Lord of our life. So whether you've done this before, then if so, join us. If you raised your hand, join me as we call on God's name and declare him to be Lord of our lives. Say, God, I'm sorry for the wrong things I've done. I believe that you died and rose again. Thank you for washing away my sins. I want to live for you every day. I make you the Lord of my life. In Jesus' name, amen.